are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Our scripture reading for today is from the book of Acts, chapter 9, verses 19 through 25. For some days he, that is Saul, was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem for those who called upon his name? And has he cannot come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the city gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Glad you're with us this morning. This has been a fun run of a couple of sermons. We're at like I think part three of four parts of looking at Saul's conversion and early life, picking up where we left off last week. We're up to this part in the book of Acts where Luke is telling us this four-part story of Saul's conversion. Of course, you all remember who Saul is, or you may, you're more familiar with him by his Greek name, Paul. He was the most vehement persecutor of the early Jesus followers before then Jesus himself showed up to him in a blinding flash of light on the side of the road, on the way to Damascus. Saul himself, later in one of his letters, he's describing the experience and he says he gazed on the glory of God in the face of Jesus the Messiah. And blinded, led into Damascus, Saul's there, he's fasting, waiting, praying for three days until an otherwise unknown follower of Jesus named Ananias comes, lays hands on him, he's healed of his blindness, filled with the Holy Spirit, he's eaten lunch, and now everything has changed. That's where we pick it up uh, this week. Uh, I think it was last year that our church staff read a book together called Emotionally Healthy Leadership. Uh, You might have heard of the book, or it's one in like a group of books called Emotionally Healthy spirituality and discipleship and leadership and and church and all that. It's written by an author, pastor, a guy who ministered in New York City for a couple of decades, a guy named Pete Schizero. And in the book, Schizero talks about growing up in a big Italian family and all of the habits and patterns of behavior and, you know, ways of dealing with conflict that he learned from his family. And he brings that up because in the book, he's reflecting on this point he got to in his ministry where he realized that everything was falling apart. He was overworked and burned out. Uh, His staff was struggling with finding direction and purpose. What are we even doing here? And his wife had stopped attending their church, which like in the pastor biz, that's a big red flag. If your wife's like, I don't even want to go to our church, right? So he's, he's reflecting on this. He says, in his, you know, all of this is going on. And he's like, what is happening? And he realizes, well, this is because I'm leading and I'm approaching conflict and I am dealing with people like we're one big Italian family. And that's a problem. 
He's got this great line. It hit us as we were reading it as a staff, and it has stuck with me. The way he put it is he said, you know, I may have Jesus in my heart, but I've got grandpa in my bones. Right, let that sink in. I may have Jesus in my heart, but I got grandpa in my bones. What he's getting at here is this idea, of course, that long before any of us come to Jesus, we are formed by the family and the community and the culture that we grow up in. We all have ingrained patterns of behavior, habits of, you know, of interacting that kind of dictate, okay, how do we speak to one another? How do we engage in conflict? What subjects do we never bring up? What things are up for debate? Even how we think about time or physical space or how we talk about money, how we follow, how we lead. And coming to Jesus doesn't just automatically change all of that. Following Jesus is a much slower process of shaping all of our ingrained patterns of behavior, but rarely in a flash. Mostly it happens in that slow filing away over time as crisis after loss after painful circumstance forces us to reckon with, man, how much of this did I cause myself? Why? Because Jesus may be in our hearts. It doesn't mean he's in our bones. In today's story, we're going to see Saul wrestling with this same reality. He's come to Jesus in this radical conversion experience, but it doesn't mean that a guy who's described over and over again with the same word zealous, it doesn't mean that he automatically turns into a meek and mild Midwesterner who says, oh, sorry, every time he bumps into somebody at Walmart. It's not who he is. He's still got his zeal, his passion for the truth, his confidence bordering on arrogance that makes him such an incredibly effective and bold witness for Jesus, but Saul can't help getting himself in trouble everywhere he goes. Why? Because Jesus may be in his heart, but something else is in his bones. It's true of Saul. It's probably also true of us, so... For the next couple minutes, as we're considering this passage, we're going to ask ourselves that question. I hope it's ringing in your ears over and over as we spend the next few minutes together. I know Jesus is in my heart, but what's in my bones? Jesus is in my heart, but what's in my bones? All right, let's jump in. We're picking it up in the second half of verse 19, right? He's just immediately been healed of his blindness, uh, baptized with the Holy Spirit, baptized in water, has lunch, he's strengthened, and then they were told, well, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, which makes sense. Saul has come to the literally blinding realization that Jesus is the Messiah the anointed one that Israel's been waiting for. Messiah, anointed one. That's, that's what the word Messiah means. And he realizes Jesus is the one who's coming, uh, filled, fulfilled Israel's hopes for national deliverance, just in a totally different way than anyone expected. 
And it makes sense that Saul sticks around Damascus. This is where he's come to know who Jesus is. This is where there's at least one person, Ananias, uh, who's willing to stick up for him when others are like, are you sure this guy's really a follower of Jesus now? Because faking a conversion is a great tactic if what you're trying to do is root out the followers of Jesus so you can arrest them and drag them back to Jerusalem. But his conversion isn't put on. This isn't fake. It's real. Look at verse 20. We're told immediately Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Saul doesn't hide himself in one of those small, you know, Jesus only, Jesus followers only gatherings. He goes straight to the synagogues. He goes straight to the place where Jews gather weekly to tell the story over and over again, the story of God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt, to remind themselves that they are in Egypt again, a a metaphorical Egypt. They're in exile. This time it's because of their own sin that they're in exile. And and even though many of their brothers and sisters are living in Israel itself, the, the nation as a whole is still in exile, waiting for God to again step into their Egypt and deliver them spiritually, if even physically. But they know that a Messiah is coming, an anointed one is going to come and rescue them. They just have to wait and stay faithful to God's teachings. And it's into these gatherings that Saul drops like a bomb with all of his zeal. And he's saying, no, look, Jesus is the son of God, the one you've been waiting for. We can skip ahead down to verse 22. He's uh, confounding the Jews who live in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. It's not that they have heard about Jesus and they're wondering, oh, gosh, I wonder who he really was. No, it's that they've heard of a Messiah coming and Saul's there saying, hey, the Messiah has come and it's Jesus. Even if at first glance you wouldn't think so. Messiah has come and it's Jesus. He's the son of God we've been waiting for. Now, if you've been around church for a while, of course, you're used to hearing Jesus referred to as the Son of God. So seeing that phrase here in verse 20 probably doesn't hit you as anything new, right? It totally, I I read right on by it without realizing until a commentary pointed out that this is the first and only time in Acts that Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. Actually, in Luke's writings, the phrase only shows up three times, uh, twice in the Gospels, once in Acts. In the Gospels, it's either a demon calling Jesus the Son of God, or the Jewish legal authorities accusing him of telling people that he's the Son of God, uh, to which he says, uh, you said it, not me, and they convict him of blasphemy. Son of God is a phrase that like John uses way more than Luke ever does. But we're going to pause for a second just to ask ourselves, okay, what does this phrase mean? It's used so, uh, so selectively in Luke's writings. What does this phrase mean. And when we think about it, especially in terms of what comes up in verse 22, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, there's a lot of resonances that that come together in this phrase, Son of God. Uh, Deep resonances from the Old Testament. It's one of those phrases that kind of captures what the whole way of Jewish life, uh, what it felt like. Because Israel itself 
the, if you ask the average Jewish person, who is the son of God, they would say, well, we are. The nation of Israel is the son of God. The old stories tell us that when the people were in slavery and captivity in Egypt, God himself showed up to Pharaoh and said, Israel is my son, my firstborn, so let my people go. This is like that time you were on the playground and the bully was picking on you and you didn't know it. You were waiting for your parents to pick you up and you were getting picked on and then your dad came around the corner and he stepped between you and the bully and he's like, that's my kid, hands off. This is how the Jewish people thought of themselves. We are God's, we're his son. That's us. Israel was referred to as the son of God, but also in the Old Testament that God had made a specific promise to the greatest king of them all, David, that long after David was gone, God was going to raise up one of David's own sons to rule Israel forever. And God promises about that king, I will be to him a father and he'll be to me a son. So Israel is the son of God, but also the king, the eternal king of Israel is the son of God, the anointed king forever. So son of God means Israel. Son of God means anointed king. It means Messiah, the king over Israel. And slowly those two meanings kind of fuse together as the nation begins to think of itself as represented by its king. What happens to the king happens to the people. So to say that Jesus is the Son of God is to say that Jesus is Messiah, that Jesus is the true anointed king, but also that Jesus is the new Israel. He sort of lived the life that Israel should have lived in himself. Israel, Messiah, but the phrase comes to mean so much more in Saul's later writings. Later, Saul's writing to a group of churches in Rome, and at the beginning of that letter, he says, hey, we know that Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, was descended from David as it pertains to his humanity, his flesh, but he was proved to be the son of God by his resurrection, the son of God in power. The resurrection is basically proof. It's God saying, look, he was my son all along. How did you, know, how did you miss it? So the phrase son of God, has, it takes on these deeper shades of, of meaning, as one commentator puts it, because the early Christians are discovering in this early period of the church's history as they're, they're working through the theology and trying to understand who is Jesus and how does all this fit together, they're discovering that even within the Jewish expectation of a Messiah who would be in some sense God's son, there was this deeper truth that the Messiah, when he came, would be God's own second self. He'd be God himself in human form, wisdom incarnate. And the people in the synagogues of Damascus are amazed to hear Saul teaching this, asking themselves, but isn't this the same guy who was on his way here to arrest people who taught stuff like this. Like, drag them back to Jerusalem to stand trial for blasphemy. No one in the synagogues could believe that, that Saul had done such a radical about-face in such a short amount of time. 
that he had fallen so swiftly and so fully into the quicksands of heresy and conspiracy theories. And Saul's telling them, no, 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 the way you got to read the Old Testament is you got to read it more like this. They're looking at him and they're saying what he is teaching is utterly blasphemous to anyone who believes exactly what Saul believed last week before he encountered Jesus on the side of the road. And Saul is not really making it all that much or all that easy for people to get. He's teaching it with all the passion and all the zeal and all the same insensitivity that's all wrapped up in how he formerly persecuted the people who believe exactly what he now believes. You can see in the text there, he's, he's confounding. Later, he's disputing. I mean, these are confrontational words with the way Paul is addressing his Jewish brothers and sisters. If you have siblings, you know what this is like, right? You have infinite amounts of patience for people who are not in your family, don't you? You'll take hours to explain to somebody like, no, 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 it's more like this, and don't you understand, and it fits together like this, and when it's your own brother or sister, you're like, how can you not see it? Why are you so dense? We grew up in the same house, right? This is the way Saul's coming across to his Jewish brothers and sisters, which is what makes what happens next almost, well, it seems inevitable. Look at verse 23. It starts out, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. That's a real quick turn in the story. And actually, if you're wondering how many days is many days, like how many days is many days, as near as we can figure, it's about three years. There's this, actually, there's a whole other interlude that happens in Saul's life that Luke doesn't tell us anything about, doesn't move the story forward at all that he's telling, but Saul uh, tells us about it in some of his other letters. I don't have time to go into or explain the whole thing and like how it all connects together, but I will discuss it in Cut for Time. That's our podcast we release on Wednesdays. Uh, You know, whoever is up here preaching gets to talk about all the stuff that we had to cut because we didn't have time to include it in the sermon. I'm now realizing if I had just told you what had happened, instead of explaining what Cut for Time is, I would have had all that time, but the time is now gone, so... Subscribe to Cut for Time. And we'll pick the story back up here in verse 23, as as Luke tells it. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. Now, in in another one of his later letters, uh, in in a letter to the churches that are in the city of Corinth, Saul gives a little bit more detail about what happens here. He doesn't explain why, but he says when he was in Damascus, uh, the king of that whole region over numerous cities, the king of that whole region was guarding Damascus specifically in order to seize Saul and kill him. Saul doesn't tell us what he does, but there's this whole plot. There's uh, the local Jewish authorities, the governor over the city of Damascus, the king who rules over the whole area. All of them are conspiring and cooperating to capture Saul so they can put him to death. So they're, they're guarding the gates to the town. You remember cities in the ancient Near East, in order to be secure, were built with walls all around just a few entrances in and out. Not normally intended to be used like to keep people in, um, but that was a nice side benefit here in Saul's case, that watch the gates and we can make sure he doesn't escape. Except 
One of the people who had begun to follow Saul's teaching and explaining of the Jewish scriptures who had come to understand that Jesus is the Messiah based on how Saul presented it from what we call the Old Testament. One of those guys knew about, uh, it seems like a house that was right up against the wall, had a window, a hole cut through the wall, and it was just big enough that a person could slip through and with a long enough and strong enough rope and a good amount of trust, uh, you could be lowered from the window outside the wall in the middle of the night and sneak off into the darkness and escape. It's really one of those like dynamic stories. You just want to see the movie version of it. But if we stop and think about it for a second, it's kind of an embarrassing way for a missionary to start their work, isn't it? It's like, oh, hey, Brother Saul's here to meet with us today. Tell us about the work that he's doing. Saul, why don't you come on up here and, and tell us about, so it's, a, it's a go time weekend. Tell us about your, your, your ministry. And he's like, well, just ran away with my life. Probably shouldn't have been so forceful. It's like, okay, well, we're going to reassess your funding. I mean, this is the great Saul, Saint Paul, and he has to sneak out of his first missionary appointment, fleeing in the dead of night to save his, his skin. Now, it's not surprising if if you've kind of read across all of Saul's story and especially how the different letters all line up and what we learn from the other things he writes. It's not surprising this early in his ministry that Saul hasn't yet figured out how to proclaim the gospel with grace and sensitivity. He, He has tons of grace and sensitivity for people outside of the Jewish nation who are exploring it. But for his own brothers and sisters, he's like, why don't you guys get this? Because Saul's still the same guy who focused his zeal on, on persecuting the early church, on enforcing Jewish laws at the risk of his own freedom. I mean, he's involved in what amount to illegal executions that if Rome finds out about this, somebody's going to be called to task for it. But if that's what it takes to follow God faithfully, he's going to do it. And now all of that zeal that was pointed at the church is turned right back around on the Jewish leaders and teachers who are unable to see or refuse to see what Saul is clearly explaining from the Hebrew scriptures that the Messiah has come. And in the most shocking surprise of all, the Messiah is the crucified one, Jesus, the the Jesus from Nazareth. We can so easily imagine Saul explaining once again how all of this makes complete sense. And rolling his eyes as people refuse to see it or just can't see it. You could sense the the exasperation. It's so clear. And the frustration, like, it's right there. It's palpable. As is the annoyance and the anger from the Jewish leaders in Damascus. Another pastor friend of mine was traveling recently. He got to spend a couple of weeks in Israel and he found this old bookstore and wandered in there and got to talking with the Jewish uh, owner of the bookstore. And, and the bookstore had some Christian books, which was great. He, he, I don't know, it was like von Balthazar or something like that that he found there. And he got to talking to the Jewish leader or the Jewish uh, shopkeeper. And at one point the guy said, hold on, I wanna show you something. He goes in the back room and he comes out with a crate And he sets it down on the counter. He says, this is all the Isaiah 53 tracks I've been given. You can imagine Saul talking to a guy like that and being like, why don't you just get it? Now, why does Saul act like the way he does? Why do we? 
Because though Jesus may be in our hearts, it's not made his way into our bones. When Saul looks back on this episode later in his life, He's writing this letter to the churches in, in, in Corinth. He, he writes about this story in kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek, sort of exasperated at his own foolishness. In the middle of, he's in this argument where he's defending his apostolic authority. He's saying, look, I'm a, I'm a true apostle, right? I've met Jesus. I've been appointed by him. I am an apostle, even if other people are telling you not. He's going through this whole thing. He's like, fine, you want to see my qualifications? And he goes through a list of all of these things. Somewhat facetiously, he gives this list of all these things he's, he's experienced, he's gone through because of his apostleship that he's gone through for the sake of Jesus. And at the end of it, he says, but actually... Let me boast about something serious. Here's a serious one. Boast about how weak I am. Because that's what proves that God is strong. He says, did you hear about my first missionary appointment in Damascus? I managed to get everybody riled up at me, and I had to escape in the middle of the night in order to, you know, not die. How's that for uh, missionary qualifications for you? Because by the time he's writing this letter to the Corinthian churches. By the time he gets to that point in his life, he's able to look back on everything he's gone through, all of the crisis and all of the trauma and all of the, the hardship, and see how much of it is his own making. Some of those rougher edges have been sanded smooth. Or to put it another way, Jesus is not just in his heart, but moving into his bones. And that, that's the hard part about following Jesus, whether you're Saul of Tarsus or an average Joe from Indianapolis. Jesus may be in our hearts, but is he working his way into our bones? So as we think about this passage for us today, there's a couple thoughts that, that come to mind. And primarily, I think we, we should recognize that for Saul, even after a radical conversion experience, even after the filling of the Holy Spirit, even after the Holy Spirit's empowering to teach with boldness, even after a three-year interlude that I didn't have time to tell you about, but in which Saul is communing with God directly and receiving his commission to preach to the Gentiles, even after all of that, Saul is still more shaped by his background and his upbringing, his culture, and his family than he is by his relationship with Jesus. Because it takes time. And if it's true of Saul, it's probably also true of me. True of you. Jesus may be in our hearts, but what's in our bones? If you had to answer that question, honestly, uh, what would you say? Because at the risk of pushing the analogy too far, it's what's in your bones that will dictate how you express what's in your heart. If Jesus is in your heart, but greed is in your bones, you'll end up with a Jesus who blesses your greed by calling it hard work, Protestant work ethic, you're just fulfilling your potential, even if it costs you in other areas. 
I mean, if Jesus is in your heart, but a sense of anger and grievance is in your bones, then you end up with a Christianity that tells you to fight your enemies. No time for any of this sacrificial love stuff. If Jesus is in your heart, but a self, some form of self-hatred is in your, your bones, you end up with a God who, who thinks that you are never good enough. A God who has to be appeased by your constant and, and perfect obedience. A God who, who punishes you severely when you step just a little bit out of line. If Jesus is in your heart, but a sense of inferiority is in your bones, you end up with a life that on the outside, it looks like meekness and humility. People may even say you're so Christ-like, and yet your life is really a plea for someone to notice you, someone to validate you as you desperately hope to get from other people what you can only get from Jesus. And if you know, if Jesus is in your heart, but a fear of change or a fear of losing your place in the world, if that's what's in your bones, then you end up with a sectarian Jesus who tells you that, man, the world's a zero-sum game, and for you to win, everyone else has to lose. But if Jesus is in your heart and he's working his way into your bones, you end up with a, a life that, uh, not easy, a life that's not easy, but it's characterized by grace and humility. Can't remember where I heard it recently, but somebody said, you can always tell the most spiritual people in the room, they're the, they're the ones who find it the easiest to laugh and the easiest to cry. If Jesus is in your heart and working his way into your bones, you end up with a life that's characterized by grace for yourself and for others, a life of, of knowing that you are loved by God exactly as you are and that he's also transforming you by drawing, him, drawing you closer to himself. I've been following Jesus since I was eight years old. I'm still discovering parts of my life that, that don't belong to him. Bones he hasn't infected yet. Jesus is in my heart, but my bones are mostly made up of a Midwestern inferiority complex, some imposter syndrome thrown in, a nagging fear that I'm one big mistake away from losing everything, and a desperate desire to impress my dad. Any guesses what kind of Christianity you end up with if those are your bones? Yeah, it's performance-driven. You just got to keep doing, like, okay, if I know God loves me today, but in order for him to love me tomorrow, I got to be a little bit more impressive tomorrow than I was today. Do a little bit more, do a little bit more, be a little bit better, which is, of course, a recipe for total burnout. I'm, you know, old enough now that I'm learning, oh, wait, I I can't always perform, and I can't always do better every single day, and I can't always be more and more impressive, at least not without burning out or crashing into total despair. I mean, Jesus is in my heart, 
slowly working his way into my bones. What, what, about, what about you? If even Saul, the great apostle, the great Saint Paul, takes years, decades to sand off the rough edges and to find Jesus infecting not just his heart but his bones, what, you know, what about us? What parts of our lives do we need to turn over to him? So if I can leave you with one question, it's this. What's in your bones? Jesus may be in your heart, but what's in your bones? Father, thank you that you are not done with us, that you have promised to bring us to completion on the day that Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord, returns. And until that day, you are working in us, perfecting us, and bringing us, molding us, filing us down until we're more and more made into the image of your Son and our Savior, Jesus, the Messiah. Father, we admit that well, while we're grateful that you transform us, we, are, we struggle to be grateful with the, the process that you use to transform us. And so we pray, give us grace as we continue to follow you, that one day we may be full and complete followers of Jesus, not just in our hearts, but in our bones. We pray in the name of the one who gave himself up for us, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.